Everyone has a story, and I believe that sharing your story has the power to connect people. I'm a working mom, wife, and seeker, and nothing lights me up and brings me more joy than having meaningful conversations. And one of the things I love to talk about is psychedelics. In December 2021, I experienced my first psychedelic journey with psilocybin. It was one of the most profound events in my life, and it opened me up to a deeper spiritual growth and helped me to heal. And now, talking to those who've experienced the therapeutic magic of psychedelics and hearing about their personal journey has become my passion. Mindful Trip is a safe space to have conversations that demystify and destigmatize the use of plant medicines. Conversations that allow us to have deeper connections with ourselves and others. I hope that sharing these intimate, funny, and inspiring stories helps you find the answers you're looking for. A wise friend said to me, all you can do is follow the threads and see where it takes you. So I hope you'll join me in unraveling the threads, staying open, and trusting the journey. This is Mindful Trip. Mindful Trip content and the views, thoughts, and opinions of the host, guests, and contributors is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional legal advice or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Consult with the medical provider or mental health care professional about your health-related questions. Mindful Trip does not encourage illegal activity, including but not limited to the illegal sale, purchase, or use of controlled substances. Hi, and thanks for joining. Today, my guest Rocco Jarman does a deep dive into the insights he learned from his LSD journeys and shares some thought-provoking wisdom that makes for great conversation. Rocco Jarman is a former analyst, consultant, and leader specializing in corporate technology delivery, transformation, and data analytics with a successful 25-year corporate career. He is a neurodivergent autodidactic polymath, as well as a poet, a writer, a philosopher, and artist. He has an established practice helping clients integrate the modality of psychological self-repair both in and outside the context of sacred ceremony. He lives in Western Australia with his wife and their two-year-old daughter. Your support means a lot, so please subscribe, download, and share with friends and family. I'd also love to hear what resonates for you, so send me your comments. Hi, Rocco. Hey, how are you? Good. It's so nice to see you again. Yes, I enjoyed our last conversation so much. I was looking forward to this catch-up. Yeah, thank you. I know you're 12 hours ahead of me, so I really appreciate you jumping on this recording. I know it's already evening for you in Australia. Yeah, that's right. My day is almost already done, but as I said, I've been preparing for this conversation, so it'll be good. Well, I'm excited to have you on. So I know you have a lot of um, different um, journeys to share with your psychedelic experiences. So let's jump right into it. So Rocco, tell me, what do I need to know about you to understand what led you to experiment with psychedelics? Yeah, sure. So I arrived just heading towards my 40s, having had a whole life where I grew up under the regime that we had post the second wave of psychedelics where everything we were told was that it was just dementing, dangerous, you're playing with fire. But 
I started becoming more open and I was, I wouldn't say I was called exactly, but my curiosity started peaking and definitely something in my own wiring changed where it became apparent to me that I was going to play out the rest of my life without seeing what was beyond that veil. And I had this mystical calling my whole life, something that I wasn't honoring mm. because I was kind of trapped in the game of life. And at that age, if you haven't played an experiment even with weed, where do you begin? Right. So for me, almost, and it's hard to say this, but almost in a fortunate way, I was struggling with such an intense experience where my home life was particularly difficult mm -hmm. and my work life was particularly difficult. So I had no respite on either end. I was bookended with kind of what I would call soul depletion. Mm -hmm. And in a bid for my own sanity, I put my hand up and I asked you know, my partner at the time who then supported me and said, yeah, if this is what you think you need, go for it. And I went and did ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that for me was I was also starting to listen to people like Sam Harris at the time, who was talking about waking up in their first initial MDMA experience and all the rest of it. So I had an MDMA experience and it, it at least let me understand that there was this completely different mind frame to operate mm -hmm. from and the state of consciousness to operate from. But the journey for me really began when I traveled and I went and underwent the first ayahuasca ceremony. And one of the things that sticks out in my mind, and I'm also paraphrasing from certain people that I've listened to, one of the reasons why when you take something like psychedelics and someone doesn't understand it and you try and frame this experience or the modality or the efficacy of the chemicals and the effect on the brain, you try and frame this in a classic medical scientific framing. People are walking around with placebos and double blinds. There is no way to double blind LSD. Yeah. You know, as soon as you've had a hundred micrograms, you're not going to think, is this placebo? At the end of the day, there was an itch that I wanted to scratch from a mystical pursuit perspective. Mm -hmm. I was always called to esoterica and related study. And then also my life came calling and I realized at some point in time, if I don't make a bid for my own spiritual welfare, it's mm -hmm. not going to happen on its own. And that was really what led me into that experience. I'd like to go back a little bit. So you mentioned that sure. even at a young age, you had this mystical calling that you were That's receiving. Right. So how That's old right. were you and what was this mystical calling? Well, I had a very unconventional upbringing. Most children are being taught about Sunday school or the rudimentary basics of Christianity. We sort of pumped into us at school. I was being taught about reincarnation, karma, and my first ever encounter with religion was listening to people talking about it, knowing, based on what I'd been told as a young man, very, very young person, mm. ah, these people are mistaken, they're confused. Mm. So it was a combination that I was given, which on, on learning much later, I realized was a mishmash combination of Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry and occultism. And it wasn't dark or anything, but it was just probably a bit clumsy and misinformed. 
Mm-hmm. And I think in hindsight, if I go and trace it back, it's it was introduction to emetics and all these things, but very academic and very sensationalist, but never never the essence behind that. Right. And so I was always kind of, I want more. And at some point in time, my young life caught up with me and I was suddenly married and I had kids and I had a mortgage. And then my sort of life took a nosedive through the matrix. Later on, 12 years into that experience, like your, your soul's just clawing inside, trying mm-hmm. to get out and trying to find its way back out into the light. And those two things sort of converged at the same time, if that answers your question. Who was the person that introduced you to all of these mystical tenets of reincarnation? It was my uncle. So So it wasn't your parents. Well, I mean, they obviously took their cue from him. My mother was a single mom for many years. And so she took her cue from her older brother and he had studied to be a yogi. He had drank deeply from these kind of waters. I was getting obviously the bastardized version of whatever he had understood and learned. But he had actually taken me as a young man. And whenever I would spend time with him, we would find normal books and toys. But he would always turn them into some sort of memory experiment or perception experiment. So I didn't have toys as a kid, I just had books and I had these weird experiments and experiences and games of body control, muscle control, ability to move my ears, breath control. And I found them perfectly entertaining, but I obviously had this low level training and this basic sense of appreciation of symbology and Mm. esoteric understanding of concepts and things, which just lived with me throughout my whole life, really. I mean, your uncle was ahead of his time. He was a true mystic even before people started using that word. Yeah, he was. And he actually had some level of real impressive attainment in many ways. Mm. He was also, I noticed later on some, on the spectrum as I am, but it turns out he was also a cautionary tale Mm. because when he died, a lot of really dark shadow stuff came out. So he was perfectly decent with me, but he was not perfectly decent with everybody else in his life. Uh But as it happened, that footing that he gave me, And watching his fall in hindsight, something stayed with me Mm. and I became aware that there is a way to climb and a way to miss a step such that it comes calling later and pulls you all the way down. And that never left me either. Mm. Yeah. So fast forwarding to, you said your forties and you really felt this pull, you were struggling in personal and professional lives. Yes. Yes. So what were the circumstances that led you to try LSD for the first time? That was quite simple. So when I had that psychedelic experience, which I'd like to tell you about, because something profound happened at that first time, not classically what everybody might expect. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But it was, I, I didn't quite get done what I needed to get done. And I knew that this was just a beginning. But I also knew intuitively, and this is not going to come across very well, but this is my truth. So I'll just have to say it. I also realized that the modality of ayahuasca, the way that it was being administered and practiced was relatively, and I say this with due respect, relatively juvenile, relatively Mm. primitive. Interesting. 
and I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'd like to explain that because that can sound quite disparaging, but let's get into that in a minute. But the short answer was, I knew that my work had just begun. And I also knew that if I had to go through this door every single time, it was going to be prohibitive. I wouldn't be able to wait every six months, two years to be able to travel and have these kind of experiences. Mm. And I also wanted to be able to push the envelope in some way that these group settings didn't really allow for because they tend to cater for people that are dealing with abuse or addiction. That is the primary calling that most people have. And it wasn't a problem for me per se. And so I became curious what was in my reach that I could get hold of, self-administer reasonably safely, and that I could get repeatable, dependable results from. Now, if I could, I would have used dimethyltryptamine, but there's so many barriers in the way for that not the least of which is the delivery mechanism. The ayahuasca is a heavy body load insofar as the the nausea, et cetera, can be useful when people are processing that emotional purging alongside the physical purging. But right. if that's not the work that you feel called to do all the time, it kind of can get in the way a little. <clears throat> so the alternative was peyote, mescaline mushroom. I looked around at what was available to me And the problem with mushroom, especially the way we could get it at the time, we're talking eight, nine years ago now, Mm -hmm. was it's a bit of a crapshoot because you can get five grams of dried mushroom, but you don't know the efficacy and the potency of it. Right. And so sometimes you're going to get this kind of experience and sometimes you're going to get that kind of experience. Right. And what I also learned is that this is certainly my experience. When you work with mushroom, You can go in there with your intentions and your questions and the way that you want to steer the ship. And then Mushroom goes, yes, that's lovely. Takes you by the hand and takes you where it was going to go anyway. Yeah. (laughs) And I had a very strong calling to turn the lens where I wanted to turn it. And when I worked with LSD, I suddenly realized, ah, Mm. every single time I take 150, if I can look after it and make sure the medicine is clean and in the same place, and if I set up myself the right way and I choose my vector, Mm. I can get the experience or the shape of the thing that I'm looking for. Now, it's a paradox because you don't want to control the whole thing because if you are looking in the encyclopedia of the universe for what you think you need to find, that's a bit like rummaging around in a sack to try and find something that you've never grasped before. And then you shape your hand exactly the way that you think you need to grasp. So even in that, I knew I had to leave some breadth for being surprised, but I knew I didn't want to be surprised in the way that, oh my God, what is happening here? Or this is not the direction that I feel is going to be fruitful for me tonight. Mm. And It was through that that I arrived at the conclusion that I needed something that was repeatable and that I could steer the telescope of inquiry where I wanted to. So what was this first LSD experience like for you? And also, how do you ingest it? Because I've never tried LSD. Is it a pill form? What is it? It's usually what you'll be able to get is either the liquid 
which you can take. But again, this is very hard to moderate the amount you're getting. Mm -hmm. But if you get things via the normal street methods, mm -hmm. you'll be getting a square of paper that's been that's soaked in a solution. And that's the way they're able to ensure that every single square has exactly the same dosage. So fundamentally, you would take it, you could either swallow it or you put mm -hmm. it underneath your tongue. Yep. Sublingual. Mm -hmm. There's a slightly different signature to the curve, depending on whether you take it or whether you um, leave it under your tongue. It just delays the length of the come up a little bit. But other than that, we're talking about 20 minutes. So if you don't mind, then I'd like to go back to the first ayahuasca experience. Yes, The very please. first one. Yeah. So, of course, you do your homework as much as you can. And for most of us, especially nine years ago, that would have been listening to Terence McKenna to a point, right? Then you yeah. also look on Reddit and you look at trip reports and you look at things like that. But unfortunately, this, this domain that we are talking about today, as you will know better than me, it's unregulated. It's got exactly the same challenge that the spiritual community has. You can get an absolute buffoon over here and you can get a very serious practitioner here. Mm -hmm. But in a search engine or in a search directory, they both fall underneath exactly the same search term. And I started intuiting because I was also working with the work of Jung and Joseph Campbell. Mm -hmm. And I kind of had this intuition that solidified later for me that um, the limit of our language becomes the limit of our world. This is a mm. quote from Ludwig Wittgenstein. If we have a limited iconographic or symbolic or mythological language, or if everything that we know about what we're about to experience, about the innermost workings of our own psyches, comes from teenagers off the internet, Right. When we have that experience, whatever it is that's trying to handshake with our consciousness has to use the language that we've got internalized and integrated. And because I had this education in esoteric symbology and hermetics and Gnosticism and all of this, and because I had this intuition <clears throat> about that form of language, this mythos, right. I had an intuition that this was all kind of silly. The little purple men and the purple jaguars and the feathered serpents and the mother spirit. It's not that I don't believe in the veracity of those things. Mm -hmm. I just think the genius meets you at a level that it can. Mm -hmm. And so I had my first experience. And of course, this will be an experience a lot of people can understand when you're dealing with a lot of psychological trauma and shame and guilt and burden, you are going there for the hope of respite. You're putting a lot of eggs in that basket. You're taking time out from work. You're spending money to go there. You're subjecting yourself to something that's potentially psychologically dangerous. Right. And you're doing all of that because the maths in your head is that there's going to be a positive trade-off here potentially. And it's so worth it because you are struggling so much psychologically just to keep your head above water. Right. And Jiddha Krishnamurti has this wonderful quote. He said, it's no sign of good health to be well-adjusted in a profoundly sick environment. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a profoundly sick environment, you just want to be well, mm -hmm. but you don't know the door that it'll take to get you there. So I've got this massive backlog of drama and trauma and grief, and I've got a lot riding on this experience. And because of that, 
there's a sense of expectation. Like yeah. everything is riding on this and, it, and mm -hmm. it's not happening. Mm -hmm. It's not happening. And then I drink again and it's not happening. And people mm -hmm. are puking and getting sick and doing what they do. And the third time I go in, something lands. So obviously there is some of the fractal visions and all the rest of it, but there's no spectacular light show. There's certainly no tangible visions for me. And there's no visitations. There's no mystical transformation. And so I'm kind of like going, oh, my God, what's happening here? <clears throat> and then a voice speaks. No voice in the room, but as clear as what I'm saying to you now, the following quatrain. First, the child must learn true gratitude. Then, the adult must learn the playfulness of a child. Hmm. Finally, the sage can learn to forget all. And not a single one of these words is wasted. Hmm. And it burns itself into my memory. And I just think to myself, what the hell is that? So I wrote it down in my little book. And everyone's doing their share and later on, and I actually feel a bit self-conscious because I don't have anything to share and I just, I kind of play it down. But then we cannot visit worlds for which we do not have the language plays in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I look at that thing and it says, and not a single one of these words is wasted. And there begins a journey for me that takes me about six to nine months and this basically opens up this blossoming trajectory of understanding of mystical pursuit from which I'm, I'm still on that pathway. And that, that's my beginning. And from there on, I never turned back. Yes. Do you think that message, that download that you received, do you think that was from your higher self or do you think that it was from your soul no, guides? No, it, it turns out I recognized the voice eventually. And where was the voice from? It was the voice I eventually embodied. Mm -hmm. I didn't recognize it at the time because it was so wise and so mm -hmm. still mm -hmm. and had so much gravity and so much poignance. And I mean, I'm not even there yet, but I'm there far enough to recognize that it was me speaking to myself. Mm -hmm. And do you think during this first ayahuasca journey, the first two times that you were in the experience and you weren't getting what you thought you were supposed to get out of it. Do you think also that you were afraid to let go or that you were holding on to something? No, I was no, oh my ready. God, I wanted you, so badly to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were ready. The thing is, the medicine works the way it works. Yeah. And, you know, I've done it subsequently six times, six separate events of multiple nights, multiple drinks in the night. It just it takes the time that it takes. And depending on how clean you've been living mm -hmm. and how much preparation you've done, how aligned you are to that whole experience, right? It, it takes the time that it takes. And I think the biggest thing, knowing what I know now, I would have said to younger people and younger me, just be patient with the medicine and be patient with yourself. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong. The other thing is, what nobody tells you, it's like one of the trade secrets. The people that administer the medicine are essentially afraid of psychotic breakdowns. So they give everybody extremely 
low doses to begin with to mm-hmm. see how everyone navigates. Mm-hmm. They don't tell you that because they don't want to diminish anyone's experience, but they will then administer medicine based on the people who are navigating and the people who are freaking out. Right. So I just had to go along with the process. And I, th- I think it probably had more to do with that than it did to do with me holding on. I was more than committed. Yeah. I also believe that these plant medicines are so highly intuitive that when it's in your system, it will reveal to you what you need to either work on or process. And that's a very good point about being patient and not forcing or not pushing to experience something that is not your time yet to experience, right? Yes, because... You're so right. We, we all think that we go to these um, modalities for the light show, but sometimes the work is the pre-work, mm-hmm. the patience, the frustration. Sometimes that's where the lesson is. And, and I learned that. So then after this first ayahuasca journey, what was your next jump into the psychedelic world? Was it the LSD experience? It was LSD. Yeah. <clears throat> so... The first experience was with someone who claimed to know what they were doing, which I trusted, and I had no reason not to trust them. And it was only after a couple of experiences with different people, both who claimed to really know what they were doing, something wasn't adding up to me. They were very fearful. They were very juvenile in their practice. I knew that I cannot get where I need to go this way. So you had this very profound ayahuasca experience. Can you share an LSD experience that felt like you were getting the messages or the downloads, the connections that you were seeking? There were so many nights. It it, it honestly would be very difficult to single out any specific one, but I can share commonalities that might Mm help. So what I was doing was I was trying to do it about a, a month apart um, to give myself enough integration time and space, but also to keep that momentum up because there's a momentum that takes place. I don't recommend this, so let's just be super clear. It's not an approach I'm recommending for everyone. It takes a very certain psychology right. and it takes a very, very serious amount of preparation and conditioning. And, and you're doing yes, this on your own, correct? I'm doing this on my own. So maybe I should just outline that. So I'm also eating very strictly, exercising very strictly, doing breathwork practices. Mm -hmm. I'm doing everything I can to create a sense of stillness and gravity in myself. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'm processing as much as I can of my inner child stuff and my psychological trauma, and it's very difficult. And at the same time, I'm studying very esoteric hermetics but very key principles that make all the difference. And what the premise in Hermetics is that there is a principle in the universe that is the principle of divine understanding. Mm -hmm. And the mind in the design is driven by love, consciousness, and reason. And the more love, consciousness, and reason you can embody, it's almost like an idea of us being a little room and we have a window and there's the upper light. And the wider we can open that window, the more of the upper light can shine into our rooms. And so there's a lot of 
preparation that needs to happen. You have to choose your music very specifically. You have to clean your space meticulously. It's not to say that there's any magical reason why you need to clean your space. It's right. a psychological subconscious reason. Because when you are having a troubled time and you are in the space, you feel like you've done everything that you can as a human being. Mm -hmm. If you haven't done that, it always nags in the back of your mind that you haven't prepped properly. So you can't be drinking. You can't be messing around with weed and with other drugs. You can't be um, looking away at your problems in your life. Everything is a case of very serious ownership because yeah. you're walking in the footsteps of the alchemist, of the magician. Yeah. Right. So let me just say that. And it's not something I recommend for everyone because I was doing this on a monthly basis. Now, that can take an incredibly high body toll and an incredibly high psychological toll. You're living in two worlds. I would have this curated playlist and it would just go off. And I noticed for the first six months, nine months, very, very intense psychological work, very intense trauma processing, grief processing. It was all at that level. And every night of such a ceremony, there was like an hour or two of that where it was just weeping. The purging was through crying, facing, acknowledging, reparenting, touching the essence of this little soul that had come and been so bruised and so neglected and so mm. abused by the rigors of life. I basically had to guide that part of my being back up into the present moment. But after a certain point of the evening, it always felt as if, okay, that part of the, the work is now done. Now you can play almost. And then I would be able to turn the lens any which way. And then I would look at my intention that I'd written for the evening and I would go, help me understand this. And lo and behold, I didn't always get exactly what I asked for, but I got exactly what I needed. Mm. And what started happening outside of the experience was that I would be sitting with these burning questions, trying to join the dots. What does this mean? And I started learning this way of just trusting. Suddenly you're looking for an answer and you get distracted and you watch this video. You don't know why you're watching it and you see this word pop up and you right. Google the word and then you see somebody mention it in a book and you find their book and then you find them on a podcast and then you're listening to them on a podcast and then suddenly this idea lands that perfectly answers this thing you were looking for. If you had gone in a linear way just chasing what you were chasing, you may never have found it. But right. the universe was trying to give me those answers all the time, but I had to let go yes. of the way I thought I was going to find it. So what I then started doing was I became very selective with the music that I, I used and chose. Right. And then I started getting these kind of visions that were made very clear to me. This is not prophecy. This is disclosure. Mm -hmm. In other words, this is a lens onto the design, both of how things work and what is going to pass right? and how time works and what we call fate actually works. And it's just a field of probability that has a lot of things lined up in a certain way 
that we can override with conscious will. But if we don't override it with conscious will, the default will unfold. And it's not a pretty default. It's a dark default. And it's not because the world is unloving or the universe is dark or unkind. It's because humanity has painted themselves into a bit of a dark corner. So what was the disclosure about time and fate? It was more just how time works. Well, time is not linear, obviously. We know that. So here's the best way I can give you a short answer. We don't run out of time. We run out of cycles. You and I can talk about whatever we want to talk about in this conversation. But the back and forth between us, those cycles will come to an end. Seconds keep going after the minute has passed, but Mm -hmm. seconds keep going on forever. Mm. We don't run out of time. We run out of cycles. And a human life is a cycle. A conversation is a cycle. A relationship is a cycle. And we have threads of cause and effect woven into our present moment that was stitched thousands, millions of years back. And now different aspects of life are affected slightly differently by time. Right. You can actually notice when you're agitated or aroused in a certain way, time seems to speed up. And when you're very, very still and you're very, very calm and welcoming and accepting high equanimity, time seems to slow down. Mm-hmm. Time's not changing, but it's got a relationship with consciousness. Right, right. When I was having things disclosed to me. And what was much more poignant to me was the path that humanity was currently on Mm. and where it was headed. So what path are we on? We lose our connection with soul, the sense of meaning and and belonging and connection that we all have. But when you get too far out and you're too clever, And the rate of technological advancement is too much. There's no correcting mechanism. The correcting mechanism is discomfort. Right. Because there is no guarantee, I was shown, no guarantee that something is going to come along and save us. There's no solar flash. There's no great awakening. There is just discomfort that we have created for ourselves. And our own decision to go, oh, shit, no one is coming. I need to step up and I need to sort my stuff out. I know you received this disclosure, but don't you feel that there's this collective consciousness that's happening? There is a shift that I feel energetically that is yeah. happening. Yeah, but if, think- if we're honest with ourselves, it's not the majority of people. The majority of people are still steaming along with the mess, but Correct. a lot of us are Correct. waking up and yeah. we are just amongst the first wave and it's going to be hard yes. for us. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Can we go back a little bit, if you feel comfortable sharing, the, what was the, the traumas that were that were coming up during these LSD experiences <clears throat> and how were you able to process them? Well, it was life trauma. It was years of being abused physically and emotionally and psychologically. And then the years of emotional and psychological abuse you suffer in broken relationships. Mm. And then the shame and guilt for the pain I caused people that I loved in my brokenness and wounding. It's nothing new. Fundamentally, it all boils down to shame. Shame of not being strong enough to look after yourself. Shame of making the mistakes. Shame is the killer. Right. So 
I mean, well, some of it was a tough childhood. Some of it was growing up in South Africa, which was the level of ambient suffering, trauma, violence. My own childhood was full of violence. Yeah. So take your pick, you know? Wow. Did you feel like you were able to slowly start to process and heal through these LSD experiences? Yeah. I mean, look at me now. Um, I, the, the thing that you gain is perspective and, and self-love. You learn those two things. Perspective is the keeper of meaning to suddenly see that all of this had meaning and all of this shaped you exactly in the way. When we suffer trauma, we always suffer trauma <clears throat> in the place that we have our strongest gifts in, in a way. So that if we are lucky enough to realize that this is not where the journey ends, healing your trauma is just the beginning. The invitation is actually always to service of humanity. And mm -hmm. if you're looking for the ultimate healing, the ultimate healing always comes in the form of understanding why was I subjected to that? And you can embody the better version of that so much more authentically yeah. informed than anyone else who could read it in a book. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we chose to be here. As hard as that is for some people to realize, we chose the shape of our lives and our discomforts and our traumas. And when we are called to be defiant or to not fold or yield to the group, the team, the family unit, the, 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 the friends on the playground, we're doing it because we're answering a soul call deep inside of us. Right. And also, if you go through those experiences throughout your life, is that you do build empathy. You become a very empathic person based on the experiences that you go through. And Yeah, I would say you're right. And I think you're without right. it, the level of empathy to be able to truly feel, there, there really is no other way to do it. There really isn't unless you actually experience it. You know, you've pointed something out to me that I, I can sometimes overlook because I do tend to talk empathy down and compassion up because I say, what is empathy but to feel somebody else's feelings? But that is the door that we have to come through to really understand. Because Absolutely. compassion is like, I don't really understand what's happening to you. How can I help? But mm -hmm. when you have empathy with consciousness, you can go, I know exactly how to help. Absolutely. I know exactly because I know exactly what this feels like. You're so right. It becomes the passport for how we are able to so authentically be of service to another human being. It's another level of connecting with somebody else and what yeah. they're going through, their experiences, especially what they're mm -hmm. feeling. Yeah. So with these LSD experiences, are you still doing them every month or you've stopped no, doing no, them? No, no, no. I stopped doing that a long time ago. Like I still do it from time to time. I help other people who are trying to begin a journey like that. I'm very selective mm -hmm. how I mm -hmm. help people because it's not for everyone. But no, I did it for a number of years and I learned what I needed to learn. How were you able to reintegrate after all these different LSD experiences? It's very difficult. Learning how to sit for yourself is a skill. Learning how to navigate in the experience is a skill. Learning how to do a skillful come down is a skill. Learning how to integrate the next few days, the next few weeks, the next few months. These are all different skills. And my personal development and my emotional competency and my psychological wellness and my spiritual health and my understanding 
they all kind of had to evolve because you can't be lopsided because right. that's going to impair your integration. Eventually, you've got to bring your whole life along for the ride. You have to fix relationships. Right. You have to change where you work, how you live, how you arrange your home, the food that you eat, the practices that you do. Because if you don't do that, you are leaning on the medicine as a crutch. Mm. And it's the same I learned with meditation. Yes, it's good to do 10 minutes or 20 minutes on the mat. That's like sharpening the spear, you know. But the trick is to let it bleed off the mat into your life. You need to be emotionally competent and conscious all the time. And it takes work. It means mm -hmm. I made it a part of me. Then, when that eventually all landed, I didn't need the medicine so much. Mm -hmm. And also whatever I went into the medicine with. I mean, now I can take a high dose and I can stay perfectly coherent. It's not that I'm not affected by it. It's just I am home there. And the way that it affects my body, I can do in 15 minutes what used to take me two hours of struggle. Right. Because you develop skills. Yeah. Right. Well, it's interesting that you said that because I've had friends and different people ask me about psychedelic journeys, especially with psilocybin, because I've done psilocybin. And I'm always very careful to say to them that it's not a one and done it's not a magic bullet. You're not going to mm -hmm. do it one time and then come out of it and think that everything in your life has fallen into place and that everything is good. It's hard work. And that's why a lot of people mm -hmm. don't do it because it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right. it, it's not for the faint of heart in a sense. Right. So and it's not a game. It's not a game. It's, I'm not doing it for kicks. You're right. so right, man. You know, the funny thing is, it isn't easy, but it's still a lot easier then struggling the hard way through a life of meaninglessness where you never make peace with yes. what's inside there. It can be a little bit paradoxical because even though your work is not one and done in that one session, that session can be a very significant catalyst to change your whole life mm -hmm. because sometimes all we need is that paradigm shift to begin that journey. We need to know that there's a there there. There's one thing I will say for psychedelics that – it puts it head and shoulders above everything else in its field. I always say that it gives you a glimpse into, it's like a peek behind the veil. You get the veil that's lifted, then you start to remember. Because I really believe that all of this, whether it's meditation, whether it's a psychedelic journey, is all helping you towards remembering who mm. you truly are, right? Yes. And that we are all connected. Yes, yes. Yes. So here's the twist. It was a paradox because why is it that we're remembering, but then there's this life is still unfolding? And I realized I think that, that your soul needs to experience it, right? Your soul comes down into this human oh. body meat suit to experience certain emotions, certain situations. My my intuition is that think? it's more than that. We we are the living embodiment of a duality. Half of our experience is an animal experience that arrived here through millions of years of evolution through nature. And the other half of our experience is divine, reaching back for a home we can't remember leaving. Now, half of the experience is about remembering. The mm -hmm. other half of the experience is the moment that's always unfolding and arriving because we do not live in a created 
universe. We live in a creating universe. And the right. end game that was disclosed to me is that if we play our cards right, we go into the next level of humanity. We just evolve into the future human where we can all embody that higher state but become co-creators with the universe. It's an incredible world we live in. It is. So Rocco, what advice would you share with somebody who is listening or watching who may be curious about psychedelic assisted therapy or is potentially contemplating trying psychedelics for the first time? So the first thing I would do is take a step back and say, what's your project? What's your aim? Because those are two very different aims. If you need serious help, go and get serious help. Whatever you do, practice discernment in your preparation, in your selection. Mm -hmm. If that person feels aligned with you and you get a good rapport and a good energy, go there. Do your homework. Be patient. Don't rush for anything. Stop experimenting socially at parties. It's the yeah. dumbest thing you can do. If you're going to take this seriously, then take it seriously. Then your inquiry is, why am I doing this? Right. Am I doing it because I'm just kicking the tires? Am I doing it because I'm curious? It's okay to be curious. It's good that we're curious. Then be safe. Take something small. Start small. Find your legs. Make sure that you familiarize <laughs> yourself with someone like Carl Jung or Joseph Campbell who can explain this wealth of the human psyche. Because what you're doing is you're having a conversation with the universe. If you need the therapy, find a practitioner that is experienced, that is aligned, that knows what they're doing, and do it in a safe environment. You do not need to go to Peru to get good treatment. There is no reason why the experience over there is any less pure or authentic than doing it somewhere that is safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Number two, if your intention is healing, you also need to understand that different medicines are suited for different kinds of, of solutions. Things like iboga and ayahuasca are good for trauma and addictions. Ayahuasca tends to be a bit more of a motherly wisdom. Iboga tends to be a bit more of a father masculine wisdom. Mm -hmm. Mescaline is more for like a vision quest. Mushrooms is more of a teacher and a healer. It takes you by the hand and shows you what you need to know. And it usually is trying to teach you about the universality of nature and of interconnectedness and of design and pattern. Be careful with LSD. LSD is an amplifier. Whatever you mm. take in, you will bring with you. Mm. Now, not all the medicines are psychedelic like MDMA. So when people are dealing with depression or PTSD, or, or there are psychological circumstances and conditions where it is not wise to be playing with this. So do your homework and be serious about this and look after yourself. For those who are beyond curious, who actually have a serious calling to encounter, to see what is beyond the veil and to have a personal relationship with that intelligence. Do your homework, prepare yourself, start slowly. You need to have someone that can sit for you. You need to choose the right kind of music. You need to prepare your environment. You need to prepare yourself and you need to always do these things in a safe setting. And what's more, I am not advocating that people do this. I'm just right. telling you how to do it wisely if you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I am advocating in my life that this eventually gets decriminalized 
not because I think everyone should take it. It's because I think at least then it can be administered more safely or accessed more safely. And if you don't know how to psychically protect yourself, some of that bad drag comes along for the journey. And you're going to blame it on the medicine. But I do think that there is an awakening. And Min, I have to thank you because the work that you're doing here, having these conversations and the level that you're having that at is exactly um, a part of that awakening and that um, bringing this out into the light. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. My intention with this podcast is to make sure that all the information is out there for people and that you can hear all the different stories from people from all walks of life. Because I think to come out of the psychedelic closet right now, slowly it's happening, but I think there's going to be many more people coming out and openly talking about their psychedelic experiences so that it really takes the mystery out of it and it takes the stigma um, away from it. So Rocco, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It was such a thought-provoking conversation. So many things for me to think about. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and your personal journey as well. I appreciate that. You're most welcome. Most welcome, Min. Yeah, it's fantastic. We will speak soon. Yes. Thank you so much, Min. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Your support means a lot to me. So please subscribe, download, and share with friends and family. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So let me know what resonates for you. Until next time, take care. Thank you.